0: Thank you. Welcome to Episode 232 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We are in full new studio mode with all kinds of uh, um, uh, Skype video and uh, uh, brand new mics. Uh, so let us know if you think that the quality is of, of the audio is better than it usually is. Uh, I hope so. Uh, thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and today uh, uh, we're joined by several people. Uh, Peter W. Singer, strategist at New America, national security expert, award-winning author. uh, uh, Peter... uh, has already been on the program once uh, uh, for a uh, book he wrote in which he imagined a Chinese commercial, essentially, uh, using commercial uh, uh, tools, uh, the Chinese uh, invading and taking over Hawaii and having to, uh, to be fought off. Uh, uh, he's got a new book, uh, um, which is coming out in about a week. So by the time you hear this, you ought to be able to find it on uh, uh, Amazon, at least as a forthcoming uh, volume, Peter Singer, Like War, uh, all one word, The Weaponization of Social Media, co-authored with Emerson Um, Brooking. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What was the name of your last book?
1: It was Ghost Fleet. That's Uh, it. It was a a novel of the next world war. Uh, Like War is nonfiction.
0: Yeah, although uh, you, you really can't tell the difference. It's uh, remarkably uh, uh, science fiction uh, uh, y, especially when you begin to speculate about what the future of uh, like war might be. Uh, okay, uh, and for our news panel, Maury Shank, former managing partner of Steptoe's London office, now advising Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Uh, uh, Maury, great to have you back.
2: Great to be back.
0: I'm sorry you missed uh, last week when I just relentlessly abused the European Commission uh, on issue after issue, um, uh, but I'm uh, uh, I'm sure you'll hold up there and uh, this time. Uh, we got Megan Reese, uh, Senior National Security Fellow at the R Street Institute, Senior Editor of Lawfare, Visiting Fellow at the National Security Institute. Welcome, Megan.
3: Thanks for having me here again.
0: That's great to have you. Uh, and Nick Weaver, the irrepressible Nick Weaver. <laughs> senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and a lecturer at the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. Uh, Nick, it's great to have you here. Great to be here. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and hosting today's program. Uh, Let's jump right in. Uh, The big news of the week probably was the release of a White House national cybersecurity strategy, a DOD cybersecurity strategy, a lot of uh, uh, John Bolton interviews in which he talked about uh, the uh, uh, strategy and a kind of belated acknowledgement that uh, the old PPD-20 that governed the interagency uh, uh, process for cyber attacks had been replaced. Um, uh, Megan, what's new here?
3: So both the White House strategy and DOD strategy are really, really heavy on what they're calling defend-forward sorts of issues. So they're really talking about going after cyber attacks where they're happening before they get to U.S. shores. And that brings up a whole lot of questions related to the use of preemptive force when you're allowed to conduct what would appear to be offensive, but we would call them defensive actions in the cyber world. Um, the the White House strategy is really focused on attribution and deterrence in general. How do we keep other countries, states foreign actors from attacking us. So, I, you know, it,
0: it still needs a lot of work, but it's mm-hmm. so much better than what we've seen from past administrations.
3: Yes. They're, they're heavily focused on saying before we needed a sign off on absolutely everything we ever decided to do. And kind of other adversarial actors know that that's usually going to lead to inaction. And so much of the focus now is making sure that we're able to deter actors from wanting to attack us in the first place because we say that we're actually going to what they call defend forward. We are going to push against those that we think are trying to get to our shores. And for the first time, we have a really strong signaling mechanism to say that we are going to deter actors from from attacking us in the first place. So
0: Peter, what do you think? Uh, Is this um, actually going to deter people? Is Defend Forward just about uh, um, hitting people back? uh, Or are we going to find ourselves somehow deploying uh, uh, sappers behind enemy lines?
1: I'm with you and Believing that this is uh, certainly a step forward in in terms of the paperwork and the strategy and and laying it out in a way that hadn't been there previously Uh, I believe there's three real challenges with it that we'll have to look at moving forward Um, One is when you look at the DoD strategy and sort of this pushing down of authority There's likely going to be a lot of deconfliction issues to work out Um, DoD offensive action maybe getting in the way of, um, other operations that were about intelligence gathering. Uh, that's always been a problem when you think about, you know, just targeting and airstrikes. And, and we saw this in, in, the Iraq war. Um, I think it may be an issue there. You also have some deconfliction in terms of DOD may not pay as much attention to, um, some of the cross border implications of some of these offensive actions and how that draws in. So that's one thing to keep your eye on. Uh, the second, in terms of deterrence itself, is we really don't yet know whether deterrence by retaliation works in this realm. That is, we, we kind of have a sense that it works in the Cold War with missiles, you know, mutual assured destruction. We don't yet really know uh, in this space. And then you have the other element of deterrence, which I'm not seeing enough, enough activity on, and that's deterrence by denial. Basically building up your own defenses so that it makes the adversary's attacks less successful And frankly, we just have a long long way to go there And that's where there's going to be this implementation question with the strategy. What does it do to bolster own defenses? And then the third problem um, to steal a little bit from internet troll culture is um, Poe's law, it's hard to take the strategy seriously as long as the commander-in-chief himself is so shall we say, conflicted about the most important cyber attack, certainly in American history. It's going to be really hard to do deterrence as long as you have these attribution problems all the way at the top where the president, depending on the week, says Russia did or didn't do it. It's a conspiracy. No, they did. So that's a a real challenge for the overall strategy. Can we, can adversaries take it seriously as long as you have that problem at the head of it?
0: We're going to find that 400-pound guy and kick his butt. So my first reaction to – I agree with you. Deconfliction is a problem when you're talking about intel versus destruction and particularly a problem here because um, I don't think Cyber Command has found a way to do things that are – more impressive than defacing and denial of service attacks. Uh, uh, Maybe I'm wrong. I'd love to hear that. Uh, uh, But if that's all you're doing, you might be better off just uh, staying inside and and exploiting. Uh, But right now, uh, Cyber Command and NSA, which is probably doing most of the uh, intel gathering, are headed by the same guy. The deconfliction can take place uh, uh, during a, uh, during his uh, morning exercise session because uh, he just has to decide what he wants to do. Uh, the cross-border stuff, uh, I think that's mostly bogus. But it, it certainly was a big problem during the, uh, uh, the Obama administration when the State Department uh aggressively defined uh, um, uh, things you couldn't do and things you couldn't do without a, a special ex uh, justification or go into third country systems and conduct operations there and since all of this happens on third country systems uh a that that was a significant problem uh, uh I'm struck um, by the fact uh, – Maury, you you probably familiar with this. The European Union has just said, oh, screw that uh, business about extraterritoriality. If you do business here, we can reach you wherever you are. And maybe the Defense Department ought to take the same view. You do something that has an effect here, we will reach you wherever you are and it doesn't matter uh, whether it's a third country's computer that has the effect. Uh, we're we're coming for you there. Um eh, And finally, I'll let you talk, Maury, but uh, deterrence by denial is deterrence by piling the BS another foot higher. Uh, That's just just a way of saying that uh, we intend to uh, defend our way out of this problem. That's been the mantra for 35 years, hasn't worked yet, and uh, we shouldn't ask DOD to buy into it.
1: Well,
2: I mean, I assume you're referring to the extraterritorial jurisdiction under GDPR, which is a big deal. I think the U.S. has been the leader in extraterritorial jurisdiction. I mean, we started it with antitrust 30, 40 years ago. The Europeans didn't like that very much. They're catching on. We could up the game. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, particularly in the Internet environment where things are inherently borderless, borderless. This game has no end. Yeah. But we certainly could do it.
0: I, I – th- that's that's my guess about where this ends up uh, uh, because so much harm can be done from a third country computer. Uh, people are not just going to sit there and take it. Uh, and I recognize that means that people are going to come into our systems and claim that they're trying to prevent attacks on their uh, uh, computers and frankly in the DDoS world. That's a, an entirely uh, plausible statement and uh, – f- I'm not sure I would uh, say uh, unless we do something about it that we should be uh, objecting when other governments come in to stop DDoS attacks here. But okay, So that's, that's the strategy. Better than before. Still some big holes. I, you know, God bless the Dutch. I, I should be wearing orange. Uh, I, uh, Nick, they are so good. They just own the, the Russians. Uh, and they apparently caught the Russians trying to hack a Swiss institute that was analyzing the nerve gas, the nerve agent that was used to attack uh, a former Russian spy in the UK. And so I've now got at least three or four countries named there. Um, should we be as impressed as we seem to be?
4: Yes, this was a good, solid counterintelligence effort by both Dutch, Swiss, and others. Um, The only thing that actually seemed strange was the diplomatic expulsion. I think that was just probably, I'd assume, um, just get rid of a couple of known, well, let's call them KGB, even though they're they're GRU or whatever, Um, and as a message because I assume all the cyber component of the attacks was coming from Moscow.
2: Um,
0: Well, they say they they caught them with cyber tools. Uh, uh, I don't know what that means, probably thumb drives, but uh, uh, so maybe they actually did find evidence that they, that these guys were involved in the attack.
4: Right. Um, And it could be that they were trying something more like a black bag job uh, attack where you, you, you break into a facility and you put a little thing in the wiring closet. And you own the network. Right. Um,
0: yep. So anyway, it's it 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 just goes to show that uh, the Russians who used to be really good at this have either gotten worse at it or don't care whether they get caught. I suspect it's the latter.
4: I I think it's actually a third. It's that um, once you get attributed on one event, you have your uh practices and um procedures attributable to others so like we saw this with um stuxnet that when some idiot decided to boast that hey it was us who did stuxnet that ended up disrupting flame and a whole bunch of other u.s malcode operations because people were able to see structural similarities similar practices etc And I think the problem is, is the Russians have just gotten too high profile from DNC and others so that they basically need to throw out their infrastructure and start again if they don't want to deal with attribution.
0: Yeah. Well, so Baker's Law, right? Our security sucks, but so does theirs, and we should use it for attribution. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, The the one thing that attribution has been good for and the one uh, deterrence that we've used a lot and that... Might have some impact. It certainly has produced squawks, is imposing sanctions on people. Uh, a, the um, Congress had imposed sanctions on Russia for the election stuff and also um, imposed sanctions on people who did business with Iran. And it looks as though uh, Treasury recently, having sanctioned a Russian arms export entity, then sanctioned people who did business with them. Well, big surprise. The Chinese had bought fighter jets uh, from them. And now there are sanctions on a piece of uh, China's uh, uh, military supply uh, uh, bureaucracy. Um, And both the Russians and the Chinese are ripping mad in ways that at least we haven't seen from the Chinese in the past.
2: Yeah, it's um – well, the action last week was interesting because they upped the game on Russia by adding 33 more entities um, and, and individuals to the list of specified persons under last year's CAATSA sanctions. And if you're on that list, there are restrictions, as you mentioned, Stuart, on people doing significant transactions with them. So it's not blanket sanctions. But once the Chinese did business with a listed Russian entity, they... Uh, they are subject to more. This Chinese entity, which is a government um, military arm, is subject to much more significant sanctions. They're on the SDN list, which means no U.S. person can do business with them. And there are some other sanctions, travel restrictions, and things like that. And they're pretty upset. Uh, maybe not quite as upset as they are about the tariffs, but they're not happy
0: about it. Yeah, I, and this worries me. I, you know, I love sanctions. I think it's they—they're great. They have an impact. Clearly has gotten under Putin's skin. It's clearly getting under the Chinese skin, but um, we've got to be careful about how we use them because uh, if we if we create a uh, uh, an entire uh, axis of anti-sanctions uh, enthusiasts, they're going to find a way around them and they're going to break sanctions for a whole bunch of uh, useful uh, um, uh, tasks in the future.
3: And, so, yeah. yeah, and just to to. Echo your point. There are two pretty big bills going on in the Senate right now. One is called Deter and the other is called DASCA. And both of them would significantly amp up sanctions primarily against Russia. But all of this stuff is gonna come into play as we apply more and more and more.
0: Well and a side note on the Deter Act, mm-hmm. we've finally seen peak backronyming because there are two deter acts, both of them aimed at and with but but the backronym is different, but but they're both – they both actually say in, in, in uh, uh, Section 1, uh, this act may be cited as the Deter Act. Uh, uh, it's just – it's so embarrassing, uh, it, uh, it really. Um, OK. Um, there, there was a story uh, uh, in, I think, uh, either Motherboard or BuzzFeed that said it was really reckless of people to be suggesting that the um, – the natural gas fires in Massachusetts might have been caused by a Stuxnet-related hack. And my, my memory on this is, eh, you know, actually industrial control systems are so focused on actually getting the job done that they don't have a separate channel for uh, doing forensics. So that if the overpressuring of the – domestic uh, uh, small lines in Massachusetts were the result of somebody playing with uh, industrial control system hacks, we might not even know it. So I thought this was a little bit – High horse to say it's reckless to speculate that it might be Stuxnet related, uh, but I will uh, I will defer to Nick. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, am I reckless uh, as well, or uh, uh, is this author just um, talking through his hat?
4: No, uh, it is reckless um, because we do have good forensics, not necessarily on the control systems, although you can take those apart and see what their current state is, but on the systems connected to the control systems that only do what they're doing. And these sorts of screw-ups have happened for years. There, if you Google for, NTSD has this whole hundreds of pipeline accident reports. And I think this company actually had an incident similar to this, although not quite as big, a decade ago. Um, So, there's to begin with accidents happen. We do have forensics. And also, we have analyzed such attacks in the past. So, like Ukraine seems to be the official testing ground for uh, cyber attacks on physical infrastructure. And there was both a electric attack, which was largely manual, and a electric attack that showed a great deal of automation a year later. And both of those were analyzed. And finally, if you're somebody who wants to test a physically destructive payload that may cause pipelines to explode or the like.
0: Why not do it in the Ukraine? Ukraine?
4: (laughs) Yeah, Ukraine's the traditional testing ground.
0: Well, maybe because all of those pipelines are carrying Russian gas. <laughs> okay, I, I I will officially accept that I was being reckless, although I'd sure like to hear from TSA, which kind of remarkably is the natural gas uh, security uh, um, expert uh, on uh, uh, exactly what they've done. On
4: NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board is the one that
0: does uh, the yeah, pipeline yeah, yeah. accidents. As, as long as it's, safety rather than security. Okay. Uh, And uh, Maury, uh, quickly, uh, Amazon is uh, joining the ranks of uh, all the other big uh, Silicon Valley uh, tech companies that are being probed uh, uh, by uh, uh, the European Commission for whatever spare change can be extracted from them. Uh, uh, What's the latest?
2: Yeah, well, none of us are surprised at any trust attention on Amazon as it's as well as it's doing. Um, the latest is a sort of interesting theory that Amazon gets all these little sellers on its platform and can take a look at what they're selling and figure out what's the new, new thing and use that information to sell its own stuff, which seems to me a pretty creative competition theory. But I'm sh- it's in. Margaret Vestager, the EU competition commissioner, says, well, this is very early stage, and I'm sure we will see many more creative theories along the same lines against Amazon and Google and others in the years to come.
0: Yeah, no, I, it, it, it's 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 not implausible. It's the same thing that people said about uh, Microsoft. You had to go to Microsoft to make sure that their, their operating system would support your application. And if you you had to be persuasive that people would want to buy it. But if you were too persuasive, then you'd discover you had Microsoft competition. That was the the knock on Microsoft in the late 90s. Uh, uh, and this is a similar thing. They, they, ha- they have a favored position because they have two roles in the market. They compete with these guys and they also help them sell.
4: I think mm-hmm. what's more interesting on the Amazon front is you're starting to see somebody, probably Oracle, do a smear campaign against Amazon on the big DOD classified cloud contract.
0: Okay. Yes. I, well, uh, no surprise there. I, but geez, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go to the cloud, it's, it's kind of hard to avoid AWS, isn't it?
4: Especially because AWS is the only one that already has the facilities for doing top secret clouds. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, very quickly, um, uh, there's an honor roll of people who pissed off the GRU and whom uh, were warned by uh, uh, Google that uh, their personal accounts were being targeted. And I'm proud to say it includes uh, a steptoe alumni, uh, uh, Robert Zarate, uh, who's now working for uh, Senator Rubio. Uh, Mori, you worked with Robert, didn't you?
2: Yeah. And I just wanted to do a shout out to Robert. When he once uh, – titled one of our emails, OK Supercomputer, about supercomputer export controls, and I didn't know at the time that it was a reference to a Radiohead album, and when Robert left the firm, he sent me a copy of Radiohead's o- OK Computer, I'd become a Radiohead fan as a result. <laughs> so I hope... I hope he's listening, and I hope he finds a way to secure his uh, email account against the Russians.
0: Well, Robert, that's that's what passed for hip when Robert was young, right? uh, but uh, I'm not sure it does anymore. Uh, uh, okay, the Mirai bot, Botnet kids are all sentenced to work for the FBI for uh, what amounts to uh, a couple of years. Uh, I thought that was creative. Uh, um, and uh, uh, Megan, Marco Rubio, also in the news, uh, has uh, – asked Apple to justify the fact that they sat on the news that one of their apps was sending a bunch of uh, uh, data about c- uh customers back to china uh, is there more to say than that
3: I, yeah I'm pretty sure Bobby Zerati needs to be looking out for the Chinese it's, it's attacks Bobby too yes right,
0: well he 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 believes in national security yeah. across the board so I'm sure he's on he's responsible for this he's 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 an unlikely uh uh, ally of Senator Wyden, who actually backed him up on this and said that the U.S. government needs to start providing security for people on their uh, uh, Gmail and other uh, home uh, devices, which uh, does make sense, although yep. I, I don't think Ron Wyden wants anybody in his computer securing it uh, that uh, uh, Bob Zarati would want. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, why don't we stop there and move on to the uh, uh, interview uh, uh, with Peter Singer. Uh, Peter, uh, your book is Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. You've already weighed in on some of these issues. Uh, uh, Let me just ask you to to give us the elevator pitch. If you had to explain this book uh, between floor one and floor 10, what would you say?
1: Sure. So the the short one floor version is like war looks at how social media has changed news, politics, and war, while news, politics, and war has changed the internet for the rest of us. The longer version of it is that basically explains how if uh, cyber war is the hacking of networks, we also are seeing something that um, we call like war, the hacking of the people and ideas on the networks. They can have just as and maybe even more impact. And so the book uh, opens with all sorts of things that um, range from Donald Trump's very first tweet to ISIS's surprising rise and use of a hashtag to help it take over an Iraqi city to go on to talk about everything from Russian bots to Mexican drug cartels to the lessons that Taylor Swift uh, teaches us on how to drive your message viral. And um, the book is also, is, it's nonfiction. It's built on five years of research that brings together everything from studies in military history and sociology to big data looks at trends that played out to interviews with some of the most um, important players in this. So everything from extremist group recruiters to tech company executives to someone who was voted uh, TV's greatest villain to even uh, General Michael Flynn pre-indictment.
0: Yeah, you spent time talking to him, uh, uh, and he was actually quite uh, cogent and had a, actually a, a, a pretty good career exploiting uh, uh, people's uh, uh, social media and uh, uh, hard drives and phones. Uh, that's how he got to uh, uh, to run DIA, where he ultimately flamed out. Um, I was interested in uh, you know, I obviously I, I follow this stuff and I'd seen a lot of it, but your discussion of how. Uh, uh, Facebook helps to goose the um, the body count in Chicago was a surprise to me.
1: Yeah, it looks um, that section looks at how. Uh gangs utilize social media and how it cuts across their operations and everything from recruiting to coordinating. And again, you know, the research for this, um, we're drawing on other work that people have done, uh, but also uh we actually found a um essentially it's a social network for gang members from gangs across the nation to link up uh and learn from each other like the rest of us use social media for some of it's for exchanging ideas, some of it's for marketing and trade and some of it's just a humble brag, but important. And there's a there's a parallel in what we see in war and politics is it's not just being used as a tool, but as you know, it's also fueling something more. And so we're seeing uh, these spikes in violence, whether it's the actual shootings and murders to uh, data studies of the number of fistfights in Chicago um, schools all come out of things that are playing out online. But what's fascinating is many of their tactics and kind of the impact of it, you can see mirrored in our election politics to what's playing out in diplomacy, where you'll see you know, leaders having what we would call online beefs in much the same way, using much the same tactics. Uh,
0: it, it, it is very similar, Ray, and uh, uh, probably the big gangs feel uh, a little the way the U.S. does, that all these punks from, from the suburbs are disrespecting them, because uh, they can. Uh, uh, they're suddenly under attack by uh, dozens instead of the one or two Two people that are, uh, gangs that actually uh, are uh, adjoining their territories. Uh,
2: yeah,
1: that's an interesting. You know, it's it's one that um, wider geographic spread. So you bump into someone in the street, you grind against the, the gang that's um, on your borders. But what they're talking about is now someone will post something and they'll get in a dispute with someone uh, 20 miles away. But then the other part, again, this, this mirrors what happens in politics and diplomacy, is you yell at someone in the street and that's it. Um, only the bystanders hear it and it has no legacy on the Internet. Everyone can see it. And it sits there forever.
0: Oh, and they can disrespect you over and over and say, hey, I posted that picture of me standing in the middle of your territory with my gun saying, where you at? I And it's still up and so am I. I yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: and, and it sticks there. And so it has to be responded to, so to speak. And that same thing we saw play out everywhere, you know, from Chicago gangs. To uh, there was a essentially um, a re-eruption of fighting in places like Nigeria and um, Sudan from out of the same thing. So we've got this question moving forward with um, how can uh, presidents and prime ministers and the like who've insulted each other in front of the world also negotiate? Will, it, will they be able to compromise or is it just simply they've, because they've insulted and the whole world knows it, is it harder for them to come down from it?
0: Okay. Well, I was sort of looking forward to uh, uh, pictures of uh, American servicemen uh, in uh, Kim Jong Un's uh, palace, saying, uh, "Hey, where are you at?" Um, it, so there, there are ways we can uh, we can retaliate and embarrass uh, people who probably depend more on um, their public perception than. Well, I won't say that about the United States. I guess. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, fair enough. Um, let me. I, the other thing I thought was really interesting and that you kind of crystallized for me is I, I, I'm a big believer and I talk – about the Magaziner consensus that uh, Ira Magaziner kind of crystallized in the Clinton administration that lasted well into the Obama administration, that this is such – the internet is so wonderful. It disintermediates everybody. It's a force for freedom. It's going to enable us to win the the second battle after the Cold War for democratization of the world without even having to get out of our pajamas. Uh, and uh, uh, so we should just just – don't touch it. Don't let anybody touch it. It will be wonderful. Um, and that just has kind of collapsed uh, in the last five years uh, quite dramatically and with big impact on the companies in Silicon Valley who were both victims of and uh, purveyors of the collapse. Uh, can you give us a sense of why that happened or, uh, and, and what they've done to, to deal with the changed uh, atmosphere?
1: Sure. So you've hit it exactly right. There was this um, wave of techno optimism, and it probably hits its highest point during the Arab Spring, and you know where the internet is being credited for unleashing the forces of freedom. And you literally have people in Egypt naming their children after Facebook. They're calling them Facebook. And then we see how authoritarian governments learn. And what the book covers is also the different ways that authoritarian governments are using this liberating tool to, in essence, fight back. So, you know, we have everything from uh, using the power of the law. Um, one of the great stories is about um, someone who uh, finally answers the question uh, Does a retweet equal endorsement? Because for him, a retweet. Lands him in a Turkish prison. Um, then we have the model that China is building, which is um, this Orwellian uh, dream. It's maybe even past anything in, in science fiction. When you talk about the social credit system, where it's uh, you know bringing together all your different internet activities, from uh, the things that you say to how many diapers you buy to um, How many hours of video games you play to create a single score for you of your societal trustworthiness and then that single score determines everything from um, whether you get uh, coupons at Starbucks to more seriously uh, your job prospects, whether you're allowed on a train or a plane or not, to it's literally being woven into um, online dating to determine whether you get good dates or not, whether you're likely to procreate or not. It's this level of control that's huge. And that, of course, is raising really, we've seen interesting questions for the tech companies of how they interface with that in the China market. But then you have the final um, aspect of control And it's, in effect, a kind of censorship model, but rather than uh, preventing discussion, it's about uh, basically burying the truth underneath a sea of lies. And this is what Russia has truly specialized in, And in particular, not just targeting its own domestic audience, but exporting it, targeting other democracies with which have been more open and have basically been um, almost the perfect victims for this. And so, again, you can see the tech companies kind of coming to grips with it. Um, I talk about them as almost akin to uh, parents going through the stages of grief at what has happened to their children, their creations, you know, where they first are in denial. You can see, you know, Zuckerberg describing it right after the election in 2016. It's a quote, pretty crazy idea uh, that this could have mattered simultaneous to Facebook selling to political campaigns that it was the best place to influence people. And then you move forward a couple years later. um, Now Zuckerberg is out there saying we are in a quote, arms race with these kind of elements out there. So, you know, we've moved from denial to kind of bargaining and acceptance. And I think part of that, you know, bargaining element is basically um, to end, you know, what you brought in, it's the companies. Trying to um, act just enough to keep government from intervening which has basically been the story of how they've dealt with it from the very beginning. Um, when we think about tech policy and um, content moderation uh, from the very beginning, you know, first dealing with uh, Internet porn and the like, it's always been a story of the companies uh, sort of belatedly reacting to what's played on their networks, but then doing just enough to keep government from moving in.
0: So, yeah, I, I agree with you on that, that that they did it reluctantly and slowly at first, but you know, at some point, you, you can't deny that you're in the pool, uh, you're not just dabbling your feet in, you're not in up to your ankles, you are wet. I uh, and I think they've gotten to that point, They're probably driven in part by Europe. Uh, they could sort of ignore Turkey and laugh at uh, uh, the uh, Egyptian government uh, uh, and stay out of uh, China. Uh, or get kicked out of China. Uh, But when the Europeans went after them for things like uh, uh, terrorist speech uh, and started threatening massive penalties for failure to take down – to take responsibility for ISIS recruiting uh, uh, videos, um, there wasn't any place else to hide except the United States and the United States was not protecting them from Europe. So they had to – embrace the idea of uh, controlling content. And then, you know, from the point of view of Silicon Valley, the 2016 election turned out wrong. And to their astonishment, they were blamed for it. And that meant that The people they thought were their natural allies were beating them up for having insufficiently tilted the playing field uh, uh, or arguably for having tilted it in the wrong direction. Uh, uh, And I think we're at the point where they're not reluctant anymore at all about uh, embracing uh, control of their users uh, uh, for social purposes they deem appropriate.
1: I think there's three important aspects that are coming out. There's three big changes uh, that are interesting. The first is just the sheer power of a small number of individuals. In Terms of war and politics overall and you know, one of the the parts of the book how, you know, someone like Clausewitz, You know sort of the founding thinker of um, politics and war There's certain aspects of like war uh, on the networks that he would recognize, you know, whether he's looking at um, You know, he wouldn't understand Isis or Taylor Swift music But he would understand the back and forth the learning the terrain matters and the like But what he wouldn't be able to wrap his head around is that this new battle space is basically created by an incredibly small number of people and run by them in a for-profit model and that the founders, literally a handful of people, in essence, decide the rules of war in this space. Mark Zuckerberg or Dorsey from Twitter, basically what they personally decide to allow or not on their, in effect, digital kingdoms can help determine not just who's allowed to speak or not, but who's allowed to win an election or not, um, which uh, militant group gets its message out or not. And in a world where getting your message out or not literally helps you win a physical battle or not. So we have this new kind of power. And oh, by the way, these most powerful actors in war and politics really aren't all that interested in war and politics. They didn't get into it because of that. You know, Mark Zuckerberg started out Writing software to allow people to rate the hotness of their, you know, dorm room mates, and suddenly now he's making decisions on, you know, uh, should Ukraine uh, um, breakaway regimes be recognized or not or the like. The second thing, I well, think it, it, may, it like- may, it
0: may, it may uh, make him a uh, candidate for uh, nomination to the Supreme Court if he's not careful. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. uh, I mean, but hey. You know we're even seeing those kind of tactics that we talk about in the book pop up in this debate, where you know we've got everything from uh, open source intelligence, the guy who's trying to play at Zillow, uh, you know kinds of information that hasn't been out there ever before. but we also have a very clear effort to sort of drive a different kind of narrative viral, um, confused, dissuade, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's amazing to see these, uh, information warfare techniques pop up in all sorts of other places, but I wanted to hit two other elements that you bring into us. One is, um, the kind of slippery slope that these companies have found themselves in where, you know, initially they wanted to just not moderate anything. And then they kept making exceptions to the rule and it was exceptions to the rule that made a great deal of sense it was no gosh um we can't allow uh, for example child porn and then it was like oh gosh um after 9-11 and Iraq and as you mentioned beheading videos we can't allow that but then we've got you know people like al um he's not showing beheading videos but he's inspiring violence through his sermons okay maybe we ought to do it when it calls for Um, extremist violence. Oh gosh. After Charlottesville, well, it was one thing when it was ISIS? Well, now we're going after neo-Nazis and it becomes what I'm getting at is, um, they try and avoid politics, but they kept finding themselves more and more meshed in politics. And then the last thing is, that's been a consistent pattern is they create a technology, push it out in the world, and then are surprised by the political and legal, um, implications and problems that come out of it. And then what do they do they try and create a new technology to solve the political and legal problems and that's what they're going through right now where all of them are turning to AI to somehow be the magic sauce to solve all of the issues of extremism content moderation political bias you name it and of course the same kind of gamesmanship the same kind of back and forth is playing out with AI.
0: Sure, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit part of this ecosystem, but the Silicon Valley startup ecosystem is, uh, you, you find problems that the big companies are struggling with. You develop your own solution and popularize it, and then eventually the big companies buy you, uh, and that's your exit. Uh, um, and so there are constant. There's a stream of people who are inside these companies or watching these companies, seeing what they're struggling with, and saying, "I bet I can find a solution to that." Uh, and you know, sure, uh, nine out of ten will fail, but the others will uh, will go on to be billionaires in their own right. Uh, uh, so it's. It's just built into the DNA of uh, Silicon Valley to come up with these solutions. I I really like your discussion, even though it was pretty short, about the AI approach because, of course, that's what they're doing. Otherwise, they have to hire, as they have, a whole bunch of Filipino contractors uh, to read all this stuff uh, uh, at a dirt cheap, wage and uh, get PTSD trying to figure out whether they should take it down or not. Um, And Nobody wanted to do that. It's too expensive. It doesn't scale in the words of uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, So they're going to come up with algorithms that will recognize this stuff by looking basically over the shoulders of the people who are taking it down and arriving at an algorithm for things that ought to be taken down just the way … Uh, They go through uh, Flickr and find pictures of cats and say, "Okay, these are all cats. So now we have to figure out what a photograph of a cat looks like. And um, they they don't actually start with a principle that cats have four legs or are furry. It's just these are things we've seen in pictures that were labeled as cats. And so uh, we're going to go with that, Um, which means you're taking – and now I'm going to give you a – a kind of lefty critique of AI. You're basically taking human activity with all of its foibles and human judgment with all of their biases and building it into the machine so you can't see it anymore. And aren't we going to have that with uh, with AI? It's just going to reproduce uh, Silicon Valley leftism on a massive scale.
1: Okay, so you touched on so many different things there. Um, so the first is... Uh, part of what we, we, at the end of the book, you know, it's not just laying out the issues and what's in the new rules of the game, but also, you know, what can we do about this? And there's, what can we do on the governmental side? There's, what can we do on the corporate side? What can, what can you and I do? And one of the elements on the corporate side is, um, The firms need to understand that they are running these massive uh, Enterprises, but they're also now running. What is in effect become um, not just the nervous system of uh, The news politics, but it's also become a kind of war zone and as a result They need to expect that there's going to be this constant gamesmanship back and forth and in particular one of the consistent mistakes they've made is kind of the beta testing model to push something out in the world uh, customers will give me feedback from it, and then I'll spin out the 2.0 version, and, and that was fine when you were doing something like a, you know, uh, a restaurant rating app. It's not fine when it's something that has these kind of mega consequences, and so they're consistently surprised by things like. Oh, gosh, you know, um, my live feed was also used to live broadcast a terrorist attack or live broadcast suicides. And so what we push for, and this needs to move into the AI side as well, is that you um, do what we would, in effect, think of as wargaming. Before you push it out in the world, have uh, an approach to it that says, okay, how might bad actors use or misuse this product so that you're taking that away so you know they're looking for AI to solve the problem and yet we're already seeing uh, people game the AI um, whether it's to drive the deep learning of it to be um, we've seen AIs pushed out become racist themselves to um, little tricks of the trade where um, yes the AI uh, can recognize certain images and terms but not if you do little tweaks to it you you know put a, a period you deliberately misspell it's, it's So it's it's hyper sophisticated, hyper intelligent, but also humans can still continue to to fool it. Um, The other sort of
0: like all those emails that we no longer get, but that we got for a long time that uh, had all kinds of synonyms for uh, uh, male organs uh, uh, that were just a little off of what the algorithms were looking for.
1: And 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 look and. This is something if you've ever been online yourselves and on social media yourself, you have probably dealt with this where uh, some um, person is pushing out something incredibly – you know, um, making a violent threat, but making it in, in veiled terminology, uh, you know, referencing a a gas chamber or something like that, rather than, you know, saying it outright, um, the wink and a nod of, uh, internet culture, certain images and the like. So that gamesmanship back and forth. But then the other part of this that you bring up, that's just kind of fascinating is And It's parallel again to you know, what we might think of as the um, traditional cyber war the hacking of the networks is that AI is being used by both the attackers and the defenders So it's creating increasingly sophisticated ways of going after people um, Chatbots Deep fakes basically it's becoming more and more difficult to figure out what is real or not So it's both an attack on someone, but it's also kind of an attack on reality itself Um, But in turn, increasingly, it's only AI that can detect these kind of fakery out there. And so, you know, the future of um, both cyber war, but like war is, you know, two AIs battling with us, us poor humans stuck in the middle, which is very much a science fiction outcome. Which is, of course, you know, wonderfully ironic because as um, we go back and tell in the book, literally the very first social network itself on the old ARPANET was a discussion list about science fiction. So we've kind of come full circle.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. I, so th- this is this is comforting. Uh, for all those people who are tweeting hate at me, uh, I figure you're bots and I'm not paying attention. Uh, uh, but it it does suggest there are a lot more ways in which uh, um, governments can. Can control and foreign governments can control the dialogue here uh, in very granular ways. Uh, it, uh, you know, I, I, Megan's a very tough person, but uh, I'm sure she'd be unenthusiastic about getting a stream of targeted abuse uh, uh, from people for her views. Uh, I, and at some point, you just say, you know, maybe I'm just going to stop tweeting on that topic because every time I tweet on it, even though it seems reasonable to me. Uh, Fifty people call me a jerk or worse. True. Yes. I well, I, you know, you're lucky if it's only fifty. Is my experience. <laughs> I uh, okay.
1: I,
3: Stuart, so can I hit, can I hit yep. something that,
1: there that you bring up that's important, um, and it links back to our private previous conversation? Um, one of the challenges of the new U.S. cybersecurity strategy is um, like you could. Kind of argue um, what the 9/11 Commission uh, found was a failure of imagination. It's focusing on past threats and not this other side of the activity. Um, that is, you know, and you can think about this in terms of even the discussion on election security. We're focusing so much on the security of uh, the voting machine which we've not found, um, you know, successful examples of of hacking the vote itself on scale. But we have this larger problem of hacking the voter or the environment around the voter, the beliefs of the voter, uh, causing them to turn out or not. And we really don't have um, any kind of national strategy for that. And it's notable when you look at the United States, we are now the model for the world of what not to do and like war. Uh, literally, when you, you know, whether it's the Baltics or Sweden or whatnot, they talk about America as the exact opposite of what ought to be done in this space. So we're going to continue to get you know, sort of dinged around in this and certainly not have any kind of deterrence value if we're only focusing on part of the problem. Megan?
3: Peter, what was your response to Trump's executive order, what was it, last week on propaganda and disinformation and the possibility of? putting sanctions on if they find that there's some sort of disinformation campaign in the future?
1: Uh, It was nice, but weak sauce. Um, It's nice in that it's talking about it. Um, It's weak sauce in that it really actually, you know, didn't change anything that as I understand that kind of authority had already been there and it leaves it as a discretionary authority. Um, Versus I would prefer the bipartisan legislation uh, That makes it um, that gives a greater oomph to it and makes it more mandatory um, And so you've got that challenge and then you've got the again to circle back to the discussion of Poe's law it's very difficult to um, Take it seriously or at least for adversaries to take it seriously as long as the president himself and many of the key figures Push out the very same disinformation so for example if we're looking at um, the now the data trail of these various uh, Now known Russian um, bod and troll accounts part of the reason for their success was um, the echo chamber effect around it. So, you know, one example that I use is um, And it's it's funny it's, it's since been used by Mueller and again everything out in the open We didn't have to go, you know, uh, use classified information, you know, look at the story of a Tennessee GOP This one account that posed as um, a Tennessee Republican It it wasn't it was actually Russian had um, multiple times more followers than the actual Tennessee Republican Party What was notable is um, on election day? Uh, itself, it was the seventh most popular account, not seventh most popular Russian account, seventh most popular account overall. And why was that? Because the account, it, its messages were being rippled out by everyone from um, General Michael Flynn to Donald Trump Jr. to Kellyanne Conway, you name it. And so, you know, that's part of been the success of the Russian model is that layering onto our own politics and we're not going to be able to solve it as long as you've got that kind of disconnect.
0: So we're we're coming to the end, but I want to push you on this because it seems to me when I look at your prescriptions for how we should address this, they are all tilted Heavily or lightly to the left, right? We should we should stop people from using dehumanizing language, uh, like um, Twitter just stopped people from saying "illegal alien," even though it's in U.S. code. Uh, uh, but I can imagine why how you would call that uh, dehumanizing language, uh, uh, or that coded language should be prohibited. And again, uh, I can't tell you how many uh, left wing tweets I've I've read uh, uh, saying that this is a uh, dog whistle for racism, or that is, I think golf was for a while uh, uh, when President Obama was golfing. Uh, uh, now it's a sign, I think, of virtue to uh, attack golf. Um, or that people who attack, who who talk about attacks on women but don't support women's rights, where did you get that idea as, as a I, I, So I'm going
1: to interrupt you there, Stuart, because I think you're doing a, a major misreading and um, injustice right. to what's laid out there. All right. Um, first in terms of right or left. I mean, uh Going to disagree with you there. You know, for example, one of the the governmental proposals is one of the key lessons that came out of the Cold War The recreation of the active measures working group Um, To what you are talking about um, is a section not for what the government should do But it's actually um, for the companies themselves and how they navigate uh, the questions of free speech but something that's known as dangerous speech and dangerous speech is not something that i came up with it's actually uh from a group um that involves everything from the um berkman center for internet and society at harvard law to american university school of international service to anthropologists so it's got lawyers uh anthropologists from university of connecticut similar um multi uh research teams from kenya india and sri lanka and what they did is they did a study of um, what we might call dangerous speech What are forms of speech that spur mass violence? And that is what you so you actually can allow, you know, partisan speech, even what we might call hate speech. Frankly, you know, there's a lot of it out there. What that was is they basically said and cross these studies everywhere from Rwandan um, to outbreaks of mass violence in Sri Lanka, you name it, there's five indicators of what might be called dangerous speech. And when they are all in combination, that's what, and importantly, calling for violence. So it's not just someone who is, you know, using those examples, they were using, you know, coded language, historical terms, dehumanizing language. It's not just that indicator. It's when you have all of them in combination calling for mass violence. And that's what the companies might use To, in essence, help better um, police their own networks, which, oh, by the way, they have the right to because they are for profit private entities. You personally have a right to free speech. You don't have the right for it to be celebrated and you don't have the right to um, call for mass violence on mass means of communication
0: so uh, here's my problem and, and i'll um
1: so so there a so different way of putting it is people can use one of those things individually to you that's you know certainly i wouldn't like it to play off the name of the the book but when it's in all combination calling for mass violence yeah that's a no-go for me
0: so here's my problem I. I Coming from the right uh, uh, side of the, sp- the political spectrum, I have zero confidence in the good faith of the people who run these companies when it comes to politics. They they don't share my views uh, and they have in the last five years um, gone from not sharing them to thinking that I need to be extirpated from uh, the, uh, the internet uh, or at least people who are uh, who, ha- who share my views, who are less cautious about their language. Uh, and they will, they will continue to do that. There are, there's a whole group of people who are now devoted to working the refs to say, uh, uh, th- this person needs to be deplatformed. That person needs to be deplatformed. The S- uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, which in a fit of, uh, uh, foolishness you cite as authoritative on anything, uh, exists to move the goalposts, to say, oh, things that used to be um, actually uh, Bill Clinton's views on immigration are now racist. So anybody who shares those views, we can call a racist and you can deplatform them. Um, So if you don't trust the companies to make these judgments in a um, fashion that is consistent with the broad dialogue in the american public uh, what's the solution because i i'm guessing that uh, nobody in, who currently holds a majority in congress or in the executive branch uh trust them either
1: a lot to touch on there um so you know you did a, a ding at um the southern poverty lawson and that's that's fine if you don't like them um you know the book has uh 1,078 other reference sources to go after, um, but also importantly, if I'm recalling correctly, the the source there is not uh, them, you know, talking about broader racism or deplatforming. If I recall, that data source is um, from. It was, it was a uh, list of it's, of it's, uh, how, many, how
0: many how uh, many uh, uh, white nationalist groups have emerged. But
1: you know, their business model no, no, is no, to no, say, no, oh my a, God, a, there are there are more and more. Of, um, how many uh, people who uh, have been arrested for um, murder had indicators of um, social media use, particularly linked to the alt-right? And importantly about that, again, you don't have to use their judgment. You can actually go to the data itself. So, uh, you know, I, for example, don't think it's debatable that, you know, Dylan Storm Roof. Uh, the I'm, I'm not Democrat. I'm
0: not ar- I'm not arguing with that. I'm arguing yeah, with but, using but me, these guys as, a, as, as authoritative. The they that, are the data, scum. To to
1: other <laughs> sources. And use, you know, whether it's uh, law enforcement data, which also shows it by 17 to 1 or ADL or the like. So, you know, again, we can go back and forth on one footnote, but there's many other sources for it. I think the broader point that you're making um, I'd be in alignment with, which is uh, they are having a really tough time dealing with this. Um, They've mishandled it. There has definitively been working of the refs by both politics back and forth, but they can't dodge it. The they don't have a choice at it. And part of why they've um, gotten into these problems repeatedly is that they have um, tried to act like they are neutral actors. And even in situations where their inaction has privileged one side or another. So what I'm offering up in the book is. A variety of um, uh, Lessons and again importantly there is literally no silver bullet in this It's going to have to involve everything from governmental action to lots of different things that companies can do to you and I but Importantly it's also to recognize it as a war zone and like every war zone It's um, you know, it's there's always a back and forth and in many ways as long as we use the internet we're going to see this back and forth so uh, there's never, you know, this may be the little bit of the parallel to um, the war on terrorism. Uh, like war may also be a little bit akin to forever war.
0: Yeah. Uh, OK. Uh, I, I I think it, it's quite clear we haven't solved the problem, but you have done a hell of a job of diagnosing it. Uh, and uh, I, although I uh, uh, quarrel with your prescriptions, which I think are uh, too – um uh dewy-eyed about uh what the uh uh the the companies can be expected to I do I just
1: said wars going on forever. <laughs> <get it>. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it might be worse than that. Uh, uh it's going to be it's going to be very tough for the platforms to find a place where anybody trusts them because I don't think I think they've lost trust on both sides of the spectrum. Uh and uh, uh and the, the deeper in they go, uh, uh, when they finally submerge themselves entirely in the pool, um, it, they're going to discover that uh, uh, it's still hard and no one is giving them the benefit of the doubt. And, and that is likely to produce long-term backlash against them. Uh, and one of the questions is, what should the U.S. government do as that backlash emerges? I'm not sure I know. Uh, I'm, I'm – genuinely puzzled by this, uh, but we've only had 10 years to think about it, so maybe in the next 10 years we'll figure it out. Uh, Peter, um, the book's out in a week. Uh, Do you have any other public events people who want to pursue this conversation should go to?
1: Sure. So there'll be an event at New America um, in Washington, D.C., uh, as well as one in um, New York, and then um, those are on October 3rd and 4th, and you can check them out on the website. Uh, and then um, other ones around town, you know politics and pros and like. but really what I'd invite people to do is go to the website for the book. Uh, easy enough to remember it's likewarbook.com likewarbook.com and it has everything from uh, the uh, Blurbs, Um, one of the things um, that I'm proud of is it has, I would argue, the most diverse array of early reviews, everything from the co-inventor of the Internet to people who used to run um, CIA, uh, NSA, D.I.A., to the um, producer of The Purge. Um, so you can check that out on the um, uh, website as well as it has discussion questions, even a music list. You, you referenced Radiohead earlier on. There's a list of songs that have um, something in their lyrics that touch on a theme of social media. Um, and uh, they, again, cut across everything from Tom Petty to Things Today.
0: So you, you didn't ask me to, to, to blurb it. I would have said, uh, great book, despite its occasional leftward uh, uh, leaning. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but it is, it is definitely worth uh, reading. Uh, there is no solution here. Uh, I, and uh, we are witnessing the mass reintermediation of uh, communications in a um, – deeply troubling way Uh, and those of us on the right who celebrated the disintermediation of the uh, old mainstream news uh, media um, uh, are going to find that – we probably like that world better than this one. Um, okay. Thank you, Peter. Thanks to Maury Shank. Thanks to Megan Reese. Uh, thanks to Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 232 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We've got coming up, we got Suzanne Schwartz uh, who's going to tell us about um, uh, the Internet of Things security uh, uh, initiatives at the FDA, which – God knows we need them. Uh, the General Counsel of the United Kingdom's uh, GCHQ, the equivalent of NSA, uh, whose name I may not mention. It's exciting. Uh, so come in and see if you uh, recognize his voice. Uh, uh, that'll be coming up in two weeks. Uh, Chris Krebs, the Undersecretary for the National Protection and Programs Directorate, which hopefully by then Congress will have renamed the Cybersecurity Administration. Uh, it will be on just before the election to talk about election security. Uh, thanks to uh, uh, the folks who are um, helping us produce this, Laurie Paul and Christy Jorge. uh, The producers, Doug Pickett, the audio engineer responsible for the uh, audio quality today. Uh, If you like it, uh, please write in uh, to him. Uh, If you don't like it, write in to me. Uh, Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host, and please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.